family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. It is autumnal out there, meaning a little darker, but doesn't stop us from two hours of improvisational conversation. Two of our favorite subjects will connect this morning, education and the right hemisphere of our brain. Have you heard of unschooling? I hadn't. Interesting article in yesterday's New York Times, small but growing movement. Among parents tired of seeing their children in school forced to memorize reams of information with total disregard for what truly motivates them. Interesting movement. We'll get into it. And we'll get to discuss a little philosophy. John Dewey. Montessori. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And... We'll have some fun with it with our two co-hosts. She is our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate and Saugatarian Socialite, Victoria Sullivan. He is on-air warrior weekends here at Radio Woodstock playing great music. He joins us for the conversation, Ron Van Warmer. We will have our annual visit from the co-founder and director of the Woodstock Film Festival. Yes, it's happening. We'll describe how it's happening, and some of the films with Myra Blaustein. We'll talk street philosophy with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin, jazz with Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, and guess what? We'll even open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. We'll have an original poem from Victoria, and who knows where the improv will take us. Fasten your seatbelts. We hope it's a bumpy ride. Join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pot bay doors, Hal. You made it through. I made it through the intro. You made it through the intro. Okay, well, let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> We've landed this spaceship. Are you going to take? Are you going to take relax. your toys and go home? <laughs> to take my toys and go home. Uh, yeah. Anyway, good morning, everybody. It's feeling very autumnal out mm, there. Is. Change is in the air, and um, uh, we. Uh, I, I found an insight from my favorite philosopher in college who is probably the most misunderstood philosopher in all of history. You want to take a guess? Marshall McLuhan. Not really a philosopher. He was a <laughs> communication theorist, although he was a misunderstood, certainly a uh, philosopher in a certain sense. Um, no. <laughs> Fred, Fred Nietzsche. Ah. In right. what way is he misunderstood? Oh, uh, people think that the Nazis used his philosophy. He was the opposite of that. He was against any organized uh, government. But didn't they use his philosophy anyway because they thought of him as a great Uber German? They misused and misinterpreted his philosophy as many people misinterpret and use other things. But it had nothing to do with what he was talking. He was really, Sigmund Freud called Nietzsche the first, and whatever you think of Sigmund Freud, <laughs> and again, history's been a little unfair to him because he was, all right, how do we get off on Freud? Freud was an autocrat. Freud was stuck in a Victorian mindset, but he was 
brought up in the Victorian age. So he had a very, very skewed view of women. But his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, it could be argued very um, powerfully, was the most influential book of the 20th century. Without Freud, I don't know that you get the Picasso's Blue Movement. I don't know that you get Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. I don't know that you get that. You mean they wouldn't arrive or you wouldn't get them, i.e. you wouldn't perceive what they were doing? He set the stage. He opened up. The unconscious was known about. A lot of your favorite 19th century poets wrote about, they didn't call it the unconscious, right. but they what right. was referred to as the unconscious. And Shakespeare knew about Shakespeare it. Shakespeare knew sure. about it. The Greeks knew about it. Right. The ancient Greeks. But it was Freud who first turned it into a science as well yes. as an art. Yes. And by opening up the unconscious and its importance in everyday life, he opened up literally the mind of entire cultures. But do you think that Pablo Picasso, who came from humble origins in Spain and had this wonderful vision that you could look at things from many angles, do you think he knew Freud's theory of the unconscious or he was just in touch with a part of himself that other artists weren't? The second, in other words, this is an interesting subject, which I guess I'll get to the subject we were going to talk about <laughs> on schooling. But you don't learn about this in school. You asked a very provocative question because, first of all, let's talk about the unconscious. One doesn't have to study somebody to be influenced by him or her. We are influenced by our environment. Mm. And the, our environment is not just what we're conscious of. It's also what stimulates and or rattles uh, and impinges on our unconscious. So that when we say something's in the air, right? Right. Great song from the 60s, right? Something in the air. Uh, what was the name of that group? They had like two, one hit. Uh, anyway, yeah. uh, th uh, th thunder Thunderclap Newman. Wow, get that ready. That's a great song. <laughs> Something in the air, right? It's like you. It's the like zeitgeist. a zeitgeist, and uh, zeitgeist, and and we we know now, thanks to Maxwell in the 19th century, and then more so Einstein, who was very influenced by Freud uh, in the 20th century, that there are fields mm -hmm. of there, There's right. a gravitational field. We're influenced by the gravitational field, whether we know anything about it or not. Now, Picasso might have done exactly or nearly the same exact paintings if Freud had never existed. But there's lots written about this. Freud opened the door and got people thinking about things and talking about things mm -hmm. and writing about things that had never really quite been done at that level. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I bring up Freud because the guy was brilliant, if flawed as a human being. And he said... And he, he listened. This guy was as critical of others as anybody. <laughs> he always thought he was the smartest guy in the room, which was his downfall. But he said Frederick Nietzsche, who was a little bit of an older, the, the, of the previous generation, mm -hmm. um, knew himself better than any person in history. Now, when Sigmund Freud says that, you pay attention. That Nietzsche knew himself better. Mm. Now, Nietzsche went crazy. Yes, I was going to say, I think he signed some of his letters from the loony bin as God. I don't know that, huh. but he did go crazy. But what we don't know is whether it was because he delved too deeply into his unconscious or whether it was syphilis or something else. We don't know. But he wrote what I loved about Nietzsche, aside from I, I, I really loved his insights into art mm -hmm. and the human mind, um, one great biographer of Nietzsche called him the first psychologist, pre-Freud. Mm -hmm. um, Nietzsche was about the individual 
going deep into his or her own psyche, he didn't call it psyche, inner self to discover their true nature and not accept what government tells you you are or school tells you are, parents. So in other words, he was a real psychological freedom fighter. And he wrote that way, unlike most philosophers who may have been, who were brilliant, but wrote in a way that makes you want to jump off a bridge trying to read it, <laughs> that academic glob. Um, I mean, listen, Hegel was a brilliant guy. Try reading him. I dare you. Um, Nietzsche wrote great great dramatic terms as a philosopher so he was he was just a very powerful writer and mm -hmm. I was very taken by that um, I was also taken by Nietzsche because as I've discussed many times my favorite film of all time the one that freaked me out the most when I first saw it 2001 A Space Odyssey though K Kubrick and Clark would never come out and say yes it's clear they were influenced by Nietzsche how do we know that okay what piece of music does Kubrick use the theme every time the monolith comes on screen? A tone poem by Richard Strauss called Also Sprock Zarathustra, mm. which was a book by Frederick Nietzsche. Right. Mm. And in that book, Nietzsche talks about the transformation of the free human being, the one who has explored their inner self, who goes from... Um, goes from camel to lion to child, meaning the camel is the one who bears the weight of having to go through <laughs> the childhood and upbringing and getting through school and dealing with rules and all that. That's the camel. Then if one does the inner work, one becomes the lion, the fierce, independent controller of one's own life. And then if one keeps doing the inner work, one becomes the child because the child's open to, totally open to new information. Do you think that they chose that music consciously? Don't know. Yeah. But they did. Yeah. And it's based on a, the poem is based on a novel by Nietzsche. And now we just talked about the transformation from the camel to the lion to the child. How does, how does uh, 2001 end? Return to. A, a, is there a, a child? A, a male transforms into a star child. Right. Okay. Coincidence? Maybe. <laughs> um, but the point is that I got, now this is how I was going to get in on schooling. There was a very good article in yesterday's Times by uh, uh, an op-ed, not an op-ed, an opinion writer who writes for them occasionally, who did a beautiful job. Uh, so I'll Who's give her credit. Writer? Molly Worthen, W-O-R-T-H-E-N. And if you have a name like Worthen, with Worth, you better be a good writer. Mm. And I thought she really did a good job of pointing out the philosophy of unschooling is to first have kids unlearn all the regimentation they're forced to learn in school mm. so that they can really learn. And that's very Nietzschean in a way. Um, but I was reading this thing and I was saying, boy, there's a lot of good, good things I can quote from this article. And then I said, hmm. For some reason, this is why I love the internet, I just literally Googled best insight from Frederick Nietzsche. And of course I got a bunch. <laughs> and I found one I was not familiar with. Our highest insights must and should sound like follies and sometimes like crimes when they are heard without permission by those who are not predisposed 
and predestined for them. Mm. Chew on that. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, this is a. Tra- I don't read German. Nietzsche wrote in German. There's a translation, but they're good translations. And you, you again, you can see how this guy knows how to write. And what's also sort of buried in there is this idea of when you recognize and don't recognize things, which is why genius is almost always rejected at first, because he suggests in there that if you're not ready to hear something, you're, the, the tendency is to put it down. True. <laughs> but that's 100% true, but it's not only true of geniuses, it's true of all of us, because now we get into left and right hemisphere again. Um, the left hemisphere being the more analytical logical, sequential, very good at taking things apart and understanding the parts, not good at seeing the forest for the trees. Right hemisphere is larger, has more uh, synapses, but Western culture for hundreds of years has focused more on the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere is the creative, intuitive, more open to mystic, mystical, but is a big picture thinker. Mm -hmm. It's interested in the big picture. Um, It doesn't try to understand the parts it tries to understand the whole all at once and um, the words our highest insights must and should sound like follies and sometimes crimes what a brilliant what a great way to point it out because what the left hemisphere the logical sequential very important part of our brain will often interpret as folly or crime is just something that's alien to it right that it doesn't understand, and mm-hmm. it can't. It doesn't like when it can't understand something. If it can't understand something, it wants to break it down and understand and, it. And that also takes us back to what you said earlier. We can already click back, talking about Picasso. Picasso was so rejected because people were so unable to look at his art and see what he was doing. It, it looked like folly to them. It looked like insanity. It looked like the scribblings of a child. And Freud's genius understanding his weaknesses and limitations as a human being, his, his genius was that he wrote very well. And he was able to write about dreams in such a way that people went, whoa, this is something we really ought to invest. This is not just day residue. This isn't just something that's a fantasy. This is important stuff about us. So we can see why Freud was very um, praiseworthy of Nietzsche, who just kept digging deeper and deeper, um, which is similar to what the Buddha did. Um, but the idea that our highest insights, our meaning any of us, it's particularly palpable with a genius like Picasso, but it's true for all of us. We, we will If we don't access the right hemispheres of our brain, we will reject anything that sounds like a folly or a crime. Some things are just folly. Some things are just crimes. But sometimes what has been, that's just been perceived because the left hemisphere doesn't want to deal with it. And so it, it creates a label that allows it to reject it right. and not have to deal with it. And the other thing is the whole uncertainty principle. And when you start getting into real insights, um, they take you out of your certainties often. Right. And people have a hard time with that. See, um, in a way, Einstein was lucky that his amazing insight, which no one would have believed, he could prove with a mathematical formula which could not be disproved. So he had, he had that. But most of us, when we get our deep insights, don't have a mathematical model to prove mm. it. And so we communicate it, and usually, it, like you say, it gets rejected. Um, 
at you know at best ridiculed and at worst you know causes a problem in your life you know so uh you know nietzsche was fearless that way um at any rate we talked about that because of this article on unschooling so let me read a little bit from it ron did you like the article i did yep. i'm all in for in favor of it personally <laughs> um it's uh unschoolers who have long occupied an obscure corner of the homeschooling community have suddenly become intriguing less like alien life forms and more like your cool neighbor who managed to stay relaxed through the months-long shortages of toilet paper and child care. <laughs> Good writer. This is Molly Worthen's article in yesterday's Times. Unschooling is a pedagogy. What does that word mean? A way of teaching. Mm. Pedagogues are teachers. Pedagogy is the art you use to teach. I never liked the word. It's too no, academic. No, it's, it's very... I. I've never liked being called an educator. Right. I prefer teacher, college teacher, college professor, even academic, although that's not my favorite. How about cool redhead? You like that, too. I, that's, that's my absolute favorite. <laughs> but she uses the word pedagogy. Okay. Premised on letting your kids sleep in, read whatever they like or not, learn math or not, through baking elaborate Lego creations or wandering the Internet rather than working through a textbook. Now, again, let's go back to Nietzsche. When most people hear, most parents hear that. Oh, so you want my kid to stay home, and instead of giving them a very strict regiment, you're going to learn to read, you're going to do right, you're going to do math, you want me to let the kid sleep, wake up whenever he or she wants, read whatever they like, learn math or not, through baking elaborate Lego creations or wandering the Internet rather than working through a textbook, you want, what are you talking about? But I think, actually, it's parents who came up with that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're maybe trying to foist it on other parents. I mean, they are a little group of mavericks who... No, but I'm, I'm, I'm going back to... Uh, I should have been more clear. I'm going back to Nietzsche's point. Our highest insights sound like follies and sometimes like Right. Crimes. This would sound like it to some people, but it wouldn't even necessarily be parents. It would be some old... Educator. You know, right. Educator <laughs> sitting in his chair puffing on his pipe and saying, oh, I can't do that. Harumph, harumph, harumph. Harumph, harumph. Probably has a vest on. Well, you know, I always thought that with reading, uh, it didn't matter what your kid read if they read. So comic books were mm-hmm. a fine way to spend mm-hmm. your time in grade school. And my son, who had a hard time learning to read, later became a scientist, but, you know, he had a hard time in there. But he could always read the books he wanted to read. So oh. he would always want to have like, mm. you know, like a hamster or something. I was really not crazy about rodents in the apartment. But anyway, he'd want a hamster. And I'd say, and we had a bookstore right around the corner. He didn't even have to cross any streets to get to it. Well, well, then we'll have to get a book on hamsters. Oh, he was eager for that. He was going to read up on mm. the hamsters. He couldn't read the books in school, but he could read about hamsters. Then he beca- went through a geology phase. Oh, he could read the books on rocks. You know, and and rocky schist and all of this, and got an education. <laughs> the yeah. uh, Chinese famously said, "You know, pictures worth a thousand words." You just in one story captured what Molly Worthen writes brilliantly about. Had you said no hamster, your kid wouldn't have read as much. Your kid wanted wanted the hamster, and therefore, and you didn't. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you have to force him to go read about the No, he, he once want, he knew ah. that, that books existed on the things that he liked, but they were always like 
little handbooks and things. He didn't want to read a story. He, I think he read his first, you know, fiction in fifth or sixth grade, and he liked it because by that point he'd sort of worked out the kinks in his learning to read. But, but if he had been forced <laughs> to read fiction and when he didn't like it, he might not have liked it as much later. Right. He came to it when he... In other words, the reason this sounds like a crime and folly, to quote Mr. Nietzsche, is because we don't accept the fact that if you get that, that virtually all children want to learn. Right. And they just they, don't want to learn the right. regimented way that school forces them they to learn. They want to learn what they want to learn, and they get very good at that. And that's why I would, you know, people say, oh, they just read comics. That's fine. You're getting the skill of reading. And it, five years later, you might decide to read a book. And what is yeah. it, what, it, what are, um, what, what were a lot of those comic books about? Shazam, boom, bomb. No, Jump they were about the mythology. Roof. Yeah. Right. Superman, Superman, Batman, these superheroes are mythological. They're based on myth, uh, which are some of the greatest teaching tools. That's why we adore the ancient Greeks. Their myths were not only great stories that taught us about life, but, uh, you know, tragedy, comedy, etc. But got us insights into the human mind. Myths, one of the, as Joseph Campbell so brilliantly said, as Carl Jung so brilliantly taught us, and comic books are based on myths. Now, you say, okay, but what about Archie and Veronica? Well, they taught you a lot about socializing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or anyway. they taught you what the culture thought about socializing. Less about the culture, more about what that artist did, but that's why you see the kid, I think a kid's brain will naturally go towards the things that they're curious about. Right. I think little girls like Archie better than little boys. I liked Archie. I, <laughs> but I, I like love Archie. Superman. I mean, Superman was my guy. <laughs> Actually, Batman was my guy because I said, wait, he has no superpowers, but he's still a superhero. That's pretty cool. Um, but uh, <laughs> let's go back to Molly Worthen's. Uh, this is uh, her article on unschooling in yesterday's New York Times. It's easy. This is a very important point. It's easy to assume that teaching children at home requires economic privilege. A stay-at-home parent can afford to focus full-time on education. In our new quarantined, gilded age, wealthy families are hiring private tutors just like their Victorian forebears. That's not a new story. Yet unschooling families are economically diverse. When the psychologists Peter Gray and Gina Riley published a 2013 survey of 230 unschooling families, they found a wide range of socioeconomic strata. I'm not a big fan of phrases like socioeconomic strata. Okay. <laughs> People who had different incomes um, and came from different parts of our culture. Quote, this is a, a woman that she had interviewed who is unschooling her kids. There's a narrative that makes people feel if they don't have resources, they can't do it. And that's not true. I'm doing it and I'm not affluent. This woman works eight to five at the headquarters of a retail chain in Florida. Her husband works two jobs, nights and weekends at a convenience store and a grocery store. But the, the mother says she wants to preserve her kids from the kind of traditional education that she says sapped her own self-assurance. Quote, if you're taking orders all the time, she's talking about kids taking orders from teachers. Mm -hmm. And of course, teachers are taking their orders from administrators who may not be very bright or interesting people and usually 
Well, <laughs> I know there are good ones out there, but I should I should get my sister on here sometime. First of all, she you likes should. It. I should. Yeah. Because she'll do everything she can to uh, uh, argue with me, which is always entertaining. Uh, she's extreme. She's brilliant, and she's a great teacher. And if I say, "How's it going with the administration?" Even I can't believe the word she comes up. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, um, she's, this is a woman who works a retail store. Her husband works two jobs. They're still unschooling their kid because she said, basically, her self-assurance was taken away from her uh, in, in school. She said, taking orders all the time, your confidence is based on what someone else says, not on what you say. That's one of the main reasons I decided I could do this. I didn't want them to turn out like me, her kids. It has taken me a lot of unlearning to trust myself. This is a very wise woman. Okay. What does it look like for young people to feel a sense of connection to what they're supposed to learn? Education reformers have been asking that question since at least the 19th century. We've talked about this before. Our educational system today, public and private school, primarily is based on a 19th century industrial age model. It's an assembly line model. I've told the story before. I'll tell it again because I like to recycle my stories. I remember <laughs> the absolute aha moment when I was driving home from college back home and I passed my grade school, which I passed thousands of times. And I looked at it, one of those typical red brick linear buildings. And I said, oh, my God, it's a factory, mm. which is exactly the architectural design. Yeah. And that's not by accident. The 19th century industrial model our schools are still worked on are meant to, first of all, are meant to produce people who follow orders, <clears throat> learn the rules of society and follow them, and either come out, some of the privileged come out as owners and the others come out as factory workers. That's what the educational system was set up for. Mm -hmm. This woman understands that. And despite the fact that she works a full-time job eight to five and her husband works two jobs, she's unschooling her kids. Uh, let's see, education reformers have been asking the question, what does it look like for young people to feel a sense of connection to what they're supposed to learn? When the German educator Frederick Froebel, F-R-O-E-B-E-L, I'm not familiar with him, invented kindergarten in the 1830s, he stressed the value of games and free play. Progressive reformers like Maria Montessori and John Dewey pushed for more child-centered approaches to education that stressed experience and experimentation over rote memorization. They lost the battle. <laughs> Although there are Montessori schools and there are Waldorf schools, you got to have a lot of money to send your kids to those. So that's why this unschooling Movement, small but growing, and more relevant now in the age of COVID with so much remote learning. And think about it. I wonder if we could make some kind of weird analogy between organic farming and produce and children learning in this unschooling fashion versus McDonald's. That there, you know, the thing about the unschooling thing is it takes a lot of patience on whoever is overlooking this process because the process itself of the children starting at let's say four or five and let's just go take them up to ten so for that five-year period you have to be 
patient and innovative and recognize all kinds of things that in a school that was closer to a factory, um, the, the teacher has so many expectations that they're not looking at what's going on with the kids. But just thinking in terms of what we said earlier about people having a hard time with uncertainty, this unschooling thing is uh, close to a Picasso painting in a way. Mm-hmm. You've got to be all the time looking to see what are they attracted to, can I, can I then help them to, to get to what they're attracted to, and then can I help them not get stuck at a certain level given that they're walk, walking down a certain educational path, can I introduce things that take them further along that path? So it calls for incredible creativity on the part of the person who's overseeing it. And let's be honest, and I understand, I chose never to have, not to have kids, and, and it's, I, I do understand how tough it is and what a responsibility it is to have kids. That said, let's be honest, one of the big advantages of our public school system private school system is their babysitters right they take them out of your hands yeah let's be honest <laughs> they, they different they definitely uh remove them and um take care of them and, and unfortunately sometimes break their little spirits well that's why my son who was his own person right from a very young age i did not put him in the school his father wanted which was one of those private boys schools in new york where they wore little ties and jackets <laughs> And I thought, this child would just, you know, like, that would be a very bad mix. Well, any child who didn't do badly in that environment is someone you want to watch out for. They probably became, they probably became a, a, a president of a company or a country. So my son went to the Bank Street School, which was Oh, that was very, innovative. Yes, the village, yeah. And, you know, took him years to learn to do reading and writing and things because they were just so free. And, and I finally went to them at a certain point. I said, you know, I know you're, like, really hip, but I'd like it if you could teach him, you know, a few of these more traditional skills. And his sister once said when she saw some note he'd written me on the b- door of our apartment, like, I go park. You know, he hadn't put in all the words. She goes, that's in the fifth grade he writes that? I was reading Homer then, you know, because she'd gone to one of those girls' schools. Yeah. Okay, they? but let's go right hemisphere. The left <laughs> hemisphere would say, see, you have to follow the rules. But your son turned out great, and your daughter <laughs> turned out great. They did it in different ways. Why? Because right. the human brain learns in different ways depending upon the individual. And I understand, listen, we can't, I don't expect, it would be stupid and ignorant to expect a public school system, which has to teach millions of kids, to treat everyone as an individual. It would be chaos. It can't mm-hmm. be done. I get it. If you're going to put 30, 40 kids in a classroom, seven-year-olds, with one teacher, it's going to have to be regimented or it's going to be total chaos. Uh, that said, the gentleman, Frederick Froebel, who invented kindergarten in the 1830s, stressed the educational value of games and free play. So I understand it's difficult when you have 30 kids in, you know, in your charge. And you don't want them killing each other. And also what you want to come out with at the other end, because kindergarten, you know, obviously a German word, kinders, children, garden, the garden for children. Um, that's a different kind of environment. You could have 30 kids running around like little maniacs in kindergarten because <laughs> there's nobody that expects you to teach them to read or write at that point. Mm-hmm. All you're expected is to keep them from, you know, killing each other in the sand pile. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> kindergarten is a great little, you know, time to really blow off steam. We're, we're time for our first break, but I want to go back to one of our mantras here on the show, which welcome to be challenged. But based on my research the uh, and talks that I've given, the three 
because I didn't know it until I, lo- until I looked at it. I mean, it, it sounds like a simple question. It is a very complex question that a lot of bright people have looked into. What are the three most effective ways that human beings learn? Now, if we were an alien from another planet, we came down to observe Earth, and we looked at the vast majority of public and private schools in around the world, but primarily in Western culture, um, more so in the United States, let's take the United States, we would determine that, that educators in the United States believe that the most effective way of learning is memorizing things from specific books and then regurgitating them. It would seem that way, although I know you're like a, a loathing of that. I'm so happy I memorized a lot of stuff. I'm so happy that I was forced to learn poems by heart and the first because you're a poet. Twenty years of the Canterbury Tales. No, because I, if I weren't a poet, I'd still like to have uh, Robert Frost and Emily Dickinson and T. S. Eliot but and Shakespeare in my head. But why should somebody who doesn't? Why should someone who doesn't connect that be forced to memorize those things when they don't care about it? If you could, as an educator or a parent, entice your kids somehow, trick them into saying, <laughs> by reading them the poem and saying, isn't that interesting? What do you think? How do you think that would relate to the game you're playing? You might be able to get them interested. But to force a kid to memorize something, you if you like it, do it. No one says you shouldn't be allowed to memorize Homer. We're talking about forcing kids to do it when they have no curiosity about it. I think it doesn't when, work. When, when you do it in high school, memorizing poems and things, I think anybody who bothers to memorize the poem benefits. For one thing, they just learn their own skills. Uh, their ability to memorize 12 lines of something, which if you don't do it, one, you don't have that skill, and two, you think that skill is impossible. And that time could have been spent in a more uncertain environment discovering what ended up being your true calling in life. There's time for that, too. You weren't memorizing 24-7. You memorized a poem every other week. Well, memorization is one of the ways we (laughs) learn. We're not saying don't memorize anything. We're talking about, thank you for getting me off the subject, (laughs) Uh, uh, the three most most effective ways that we learn. Memorization is not one of the top three. No. It just isn't. That's true. Now, that doesn't mean that if you like (laughs) memorizing, you shouldn't do it. And it doesn't mean that you you can't learn if you don't memorize certain things. Do you know who did a lot of memorizing? Lincoln. Lincoln would read a book, and then he'd read it again, and he'd read it to himself out loud, and then he'd write down whole pages straight from okay. the book because that's how he thought he would learn and law. And have there been great leaders and who didn't learn that? And he got to be that? a very good lawyer And have there been great that. leaders who haven't learned that way? Probably. <laughs> yeah. So the point is— I just is, got interested in Lincoln right. recently. And <laughs> all of our brains are different. For some people, memorization is a great way to learn. We're talking about forcing it, but what are the three most effective ways of learning? Well, you know them, and you tell them us every time, and we're not that good students, so we forget. <laughs> well, I know storytelling is one of them. them. <laughs> storytelling is one of them. Storytelling, like stories are one. Uh, not storytelling, stories. Okay. Games. Games yes, and play. Yes, you always remember that. Yeah. You remember games and play, <laughs> and I remember storytelling. <laughs> games and play, that's what I'm good at. <laughs> you remember the things you're good at. And it's interesting, and again, I wouldn't have gotten the answers if I hadn't looked it up, so we all tend to forget it. But actually, as important as those two are, they're not the most effective way that human beings learn. And the clue is it's also the most effective ways that all animals learn. Mm. Now, Trial and error. Trial and error. 
Now, question. Where's trial and error in our educational system? It's considered failure. Error is considered right. failure. And that's true in the whole culture. But by definition, our educational system can't get people to learn because we don't celebrate trial and error. No. We, you're, you're, you're scared into not making a mistake. Right. It's very clear that's the worst way to learn. And continuing through your life since... Lifetime learning is the goal. Um, if you don't keep using your mind, you, it gets a little dull. But trial and error in, in so many situations, it would be useful if, if people could allow people to make mistakes. Yeah. And again, you take any good point, take it to its extreme, it becomes ridiculous. Oh, so, okay, so trial and error. So uh, someone's driving you somewhere, and, and, and we don't care if they make errors and crash the car. Okay, let's get a little common sense here. We're talking <laughs> about general learning, not every situation on the planet, okay? So there are times when we want somebody following the rules very carefully, like when they're driving. We'd like them to stop at a red light, okay? Mm-hmm. Right. But the point is, it, the three most... According to my research, if you have better research, email me, Doug at WoodstockRoundtable.com. We'll talk about it. We'll bring it up on the air. But memorization is one of the ways we learn. It can be an effective way. It's not one of the three most important. And, and, and the inventor of kindergarten understood that by saying he wanted kindergarten to be about games and free play. Right. I would point out that that's just as important in high school and college as it is in kindergarten. Mm. And maybe in job training. Yeah. I, I heard some guy recently who wrote a book By on By the way, we're leadership. 10 minutes past our break. And I should have gotten this, <laughs> this leadership guy's name. But he had found, you know, like he'd interviewed hundreds of people. He had run his own corporation and, and, you know, he had 30 top people. And he said in all their cases, you know, someone said, well, what are the common factors of an effective leader? He said in almost all the cases of the people that he uh, interviewed, they had some major failure early in their life that they then overcame. And the people that try and avoid all failures uh, are in trouble. You can't go through life in an interesting way and never risk failure. Since we're already past our break, the way I just kind of try to tie this thing up is, uh, or summarize it, I get it. If you are in a public school and you're an individual teacher with 20 or 30 kids and they're 10 years old, the way we have it set up, there's no way to give them a lot of free play, you know, have education be mostly free play games and kids do what they're curious about. That's why they created the Montessori schools. That's why they created the Waldorf schools, which do that. You need a lot of money to send your kids there. What's interesting about this trend, small but growing, and more prominent now, as the author points out, because our, think about it. Our educational system has no clue how to deal with this pandemic. Do we let kids in or do we not? My sister's a public high school teacher, teaches Italian. She's ready to strangle some people because she says half the, the kids are in, but, half the, but then they're home half the time. Uh, nobody knows what to do. So... There, this unschooling is interesting, because, especially the, the, the author of the article was smart enough to find a woman who's not wealthy, who can't afford a private school, but is determined because of her. she saw how her own independence was robbed by public schools. She's determined to unschool her kid. So 
We'll see if it grows as a movement. But um, we'll take a break. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. The cook in the lunchroom ready to sell. This is still the Woodstock Roundtable? I think so. Okay. Doug Grunther, your host with two <laughs> wonderful co-hosts. Victoria Sullivan's our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate. That means we get an original poem well, later on. Well, I thought it was an original poem, but I want to read a Robert Frost today. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> Did you memorize it? Yeah. I memorized it in high school, and I still know about a third of it, but I brought hey. the text. Is hey. this the first time that you haven't read an original poem, that you're reading someone else's poem in the, in the no, years? No, I read Langston been? Hughes <clears throat> when I was trying to celebrate John Lewis. Ah, so it's it's a slightly new trend. But I also, uh, the poem I'm going to read by Frost is very cynical. And if we get in a cynical mood, I have a cynical poem of mine from an earlier period of my life when I was much All more right. cynical. <laughs> <laughs> I like cynicism. <laughs> Our street philosopher Patrick Carlin is, uh, has his Ph.D. in cynicism. I know, and he has a joyous cynicism. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> what do you call it? What, what, what's the, what is the term for a phrase like, there's a term for a phrase which is two words that are opposite. Oxymoron. Oxymoron. Thank you. <laughs> a joyous cynic. <laughs> I know. It would seem not to go together, but with Patrick. And it does. With many of us, when you finally <clears throat> just figure out how truly comic life is, even if you're dark in your view, there's a part of you that laughs. Well, with that, uh, what we're, to- <laughs> oh, we're talking about the article from yesterday's Times by uh, opinion writer, uh, Molly Worthen on unschooling, which is this small but growing movement of parents, not all of whom can afford private tutors, but are can, are just tired of their kids being regimented at school and failing, not doing well, and 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 figuring out kind of on their own with the help. There are some books out on this and things like that, but primarily f- letting a child learn what they're curious about. Can I say something about this? Because I think the unschooling Can movement... you? The, uh, <laughs> if I try to stop you, I would be physically injured. <laughs> yes. Uh, so there, the bigger movement that people may know about is homeschooling. <clears throat> and a lot of people over the last 20, 30 years have decided that they don't want to send their kids to schools. They'd rather teach them at home. And apparently the states put out a lot of material for these people now so they can give them a similar education to what they would get in school, but removing them from whatever the parents don't want them but to But unschooling is different from that. No, I'm going to say it's a smaller unit. Subset. And I think it's interesting because in some ways it's almost a rebellion against homeschooling because one of the things about homeschooling that I think has happened is that they've tried to codify it right. in the same way that schools are codified. So if you're homeschooling at home and you're dealing with the state, I believe you you write or call them and they send you, this is what our normal uh, routine would be in the third grade or the fourth grade or the fifth grade. This is what students are expected to know in the public schools. So you need to get these books or these kinds of books and do it in the same way. And I think they also stress a lot 
discipline in homeschooling, that you have to pick an hour of the day and you right. have to sit the kids down at a table. This is very different. Now, and this, not, is, this is like a rebellion against that, correct. unschooling. But it's not mm. unheard of. I am no expert in it, but um, from what I, the little I know, the Montessori method, the Waldorf school method based on Steiner's uh, philosophy are much more akin to what the unschoolers are doing. Yes, it's 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 more creative really than most forms of homeschooling, although the, that would obviously vary with the parent. And some parents might actually in homeschooling be quite similar to unschooling. But I think others are trying to do it exactly the way the book is sent to them. This is how you're supposed well, to do it. Well, let's get into a little philosophy here because uh, I know you're a big fan of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I am. And a uh, uh, great him. French philosopher <laughs> from the 18th century. And he wrote a book called Emile, which was his way of talking about education. And here's a quote that Molly Worthen uses in her fine article. Um, children ought to leap, to run, to shout whenever they will. All their movements are necessities of nature, which is endeavoring to strengthen itself. Talk about most parents thinking that is a crime or a folly, to quote Nietzsche. And I get it. I'm not a parent. It can be a real challenge. <laughs> but the, 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 we also know that if you force kids to do things, the smart ones are going to rebel. Right. Um, well, Jean-Jacques like, like Rousseau so. was writing there in the 18th century, and it was a very uh, idealistic time. And, and he so let's go came out with the So let's go meal. 20th century. Um, no, I'm, is, I'm happy to have him like that. I'm not trying to put him down. Let's go 20th century. I'm placing him for people. Uh, Plate Bowles, <laughs> the author of Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? Interesting title. <laughs> yeah. Quote, when I, I love that title. Quote, when I came into this world, I thought that when you remove restrictions, the paraphernalia of school and coercion, then kids' curiosity and self-direction would naturally bloom. That's not what happens. There are plenty of motivational challenges. They struggle like other kids. To make your point about Rousseau, who was an idealist, a brilliant one, no one's saying that unschooling is this this heavenly way and kids just naturally become great learners. Growing up is a is difficult. Being a parent is difficult. That doesn't get eliminated. We're talking about what's the best way to learn, mm. not what's the easiest way to keep a kid from get, you know from being a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, uh, so he this is this is someone who's saying why are you still sending kids to school? Understanding that whether you're homeschooling, unschooling, or sending your kids to school, kids struggle. I think that's okay. I say when you choose to unschool, you're choosing to take on a heightened sense of freedom and responsibility that most people don't choose until they're 18 or 22. It's the same struggle just happening earlier. So in other words, I know you, me, when we went to college, we freaked out with joy, mm. especially after freshman year where I went to school, where you could, you could choose the courses you took. Mm-hmm. I was 19 years old before I could do that. Mm-hmm. His point is, that doesn't mean you stop struggling. It means, though, that you're on a whole, your mind is much on a different vibration. It's, it's going after what it wants to learn about. And he's saying with unschooling, instead of waiting until you're 19 or 20 to do that, you're doing it at a younger, much younger age. It's the best way to learn. Um, 
But, you know, the other thing with learning and teaching, uh, I taught at a college where most of the students were not in the humanities. And a lot of them were in um, accountancy. It was a very big major. Mm -hmm. And they had to take a literature course. That was part of the school's claim that they were getting a humanitarian or humanities um, education. So they had to take a course in either poetry and drama or fiction. Now, a lot of these kids came in there with this look on their face like, this is the worst thing that's ever been done to me. And I would have 30 of them in a classroom sitting there the first day thinking, who is she and why am I here? And sometimes I would say to them, being me, hi, so what are you doing in this classroom? And they'd say things like, oh, we have to take it. I say, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, we have to take it to get the credits. So, so that's why you're taking it. Yeah, why else would I take it? Okay, well, you know. So I had to work with people like that. Now, you could say, well, they shouldn't have been made to take that. A lot of them, by the time they went through my grueling, <laughs> devastating, demanding um, course, said, you know, I'm really glad I took this. I would have never taken this. So you have to learn how to inspire people to get curious in ways that they're not. Okay. You can't so just bring in two very important points. Number one, anything taken to an extreme becomes ridiculous. So to say never force a kid to do something would be stupid. Okay. But we're, we're talking about a general philosophy and understanding of how human beings learn most effectively. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's just a fact. Human beings learn most effectively through trial and error, games and play, and stories. Right. Okay? But we also learn through memorization. And yes, we've all had experience. Every one of us listening to this show and us have had an experience where we were forced to do something and we were glad we were. But not everything, (laughs) which is what our school Mm. system is. We have the devil's in the dose. Well, and also a lot of the problem is, frankly, with the teachers. Exactly. Um, Because I had to work very hard to bring them around, but I would bring them around. And I did it with play and games. And now we're going to read a scene from a Carol Churchill play. And the guys have to play women in this. And if your mother has a wig, would you bring it in? And it's like, "Ah, ah." but But they learned something about theater. And And I told the story before, but again, I like to recycle my stories. Pierre Weiss. Demonstrating again, these are very, they're very. Look, there are very few, there are very few people that are great at anything, including teaching. But I was actually into classical music at the time. But um, uh, we ha- at the school at Columbia, you had to take as a sophomore either an art appreciation class or a music appreciation class. So I chose music. I was already into classical music, and this was going to be a classical music. Well. It was one of those classes with like 60 people in like almost in a big, big classroom. And most of them were, you know, jocks, were athletes who were forced to take either art or music. So they picked music. They had no interest in it. The teacher knew that just as you knew it. And this guy, I didn't know who Piero Weiss was. I ended up learning who he was. The first day I'm going, this is good. This is going to be a you know what cluster you know what you know these people <laughs> not these people here they don't want to be here right guy walks in white haired the whole thing and there was a grand piano in the room where he was and he walked in smiled at us sat down at the piano and played chopin's revolutionary etude which could you pull that up it's one of the most <laughs> dramatic pieces you could ever imagine for the piano and he freaking nailed it and everyone in that room 
including the people who couldn't give an a rat's rear end about classical music, stood up and applauded. He had the respect of everybody before he opened his mouth. Okay. Now I understand not every teacher is that is is that good at what no. you're teaching, <laughs> but th- that's that's not really the point. The point was process always trumps content. Right. That and was he created, he, uh, he he right. he created an immediate what's the word uh, 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 leadership. Yeah. He became the lead member of the herd right away. Right. Instead of coming in and giving a lecture on how wonderful classical music is, right. he walked in and showed you. Yeah, and didn't and 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 just sat down and came up and then and, he, and tr- the reason that he I found out later he was a protege of uh, um, uh, Toscanini, mm. <laughs> the greatest, right? And was destined to be a great concert pianist. He didn't have the emo- He was too. He was too emotionally fragile to deal with the pressures mm-hmm. of being on stage. So he became a teacher. But he was, now that was just, that was lucky on our part. And I understand, not everyone else, but the, the, I think the point's taken. Mm-hmm. There are ways of inspiring people and it's not memorization. I'll go along with that. Oh, don't. <laughs> Is Patrick there? I believe so. Hey, Patrick. 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 By the way, uh, we're moving, uh, Radio Woodstock is moving. And when? To this beautiful former church. I uh, negotiated the deal. Um, and the offices are already are going to be there next week. The studio is going to be another couple months. Uh-huh. But we're in transition between the two. So a lot of things don't work here, <laughs> which doesn't explain when we don't work, but it explains why our phone system doesn't work. <laughs> and, and it doesn't stop us, does it? Unfortunately, when the going gets tough, the not. tough get going. When the going gets tough. That was one of my, another of my childhood things. Tough case. Yeah, like shoulder no. to the wheel, nose to the ground. Yeah, but it's a little different from it because it gives you kind of strength. Like when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It's it's more inspirational than. It's not inspirational because tough is, <laughs> toughness is overrated, as we know. We're, we have to be tough. Yes, we do, but it gets us into a lot of wars. Well, I don't mean that kind of tough. I just mean the tough, like oh, I got to get up today and I don't feel so great. <laughs> That, I don't know if that's tough. Yeah, that's tough. That's perseverance. It's, oh, well, it's okay. related. Okay. It's related. We're, we're just goofing around here yes, trying to get Patrick are. on the phone. I had to goof around the other day. I'm teaching a course in the Lifetime Learning, and I have two tech people, but they're not always baby. Hey, we there. got Patrick. Hey, Patrick. Oh, yeah, man, because you kept trying. Listen, uh, uh, I know that you love the regimentation of school and that you followed all the orders. So I, I hope we didn't insult you in our in our discussion the first hour. Oh, I love the joyous cynic, dude. <laughs> Turn your because radio I, off. I, my motto is hopelessness is not a bummer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because the whole trip ends in a black hole, you know, so get realistic and enjoy the scene. And for unschooling and tripping like that, that was so wonderful because I was on automatic. I didn't care what the teacher and those people were saying. I knew all the important stuff before I got to school. And most of the real things I've learned in my life, I learned from people. I mean, I was a tiny little dude, like three and a half or four. And I'd be talking with the trip was just a pain. And I got around it. You know, I faked the homework and all. And we could take the subjects we wanted in high school, Doug. That's why I wound up taking typing as a senior instead of calculus. 
because I also passed on trigonometry and that. I, I, I just was not on that scene. I didn't dig schooling. And I brought our kids up the same way, and they're fine. And I'll tell you something. Me and Marlene worked in the kitchen up at a school like this one you're talking about, Walton and these kind of schools. And these were kids who had been caught smoking dope in prep school or not. You know, they were just recalcitrant. They were the kind of kids I was. I was sent to boarding school because I called a nun a son of a bitch and bastard in second grade. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, schooling was not a heavy... I came out of one of those jams up there at the Mountain Jam one time, and I had parked far away, and I had to walk past the school. And there was a middle-class dude there with his old lady, and they were walking toward their car. And I just said to him, I said, man, why do these schools always look like prisons to me? And the dude said, because they are. <laughs> so, I mean, get real. And when you guys said Nietzsche, you came right up my trip. I like Nietzsche, man, because it rhymes with Teachy. And the guy was cool. I got a thing marked here right by a star. It says, without music, life would be a mistake. Okay? <laughs> this is Nietzsche. And the guy was a heavy dude. I got five check marks next to him in my Bartlett's book of quotations. And I got things with stars on them. One of the first quotes he has is, uh, beware of those who use punishment. Mm. Yeah. And, it, you know, the guy was free. He knew what was happening, and I like him. So if you're okay in my book, that's important. And uh, I love everything you've done this morning because it's all into one big ball of stuff here. And uh, that's the way I like it. Uh, the kids in that school, the rejects from prep school and all, I found that every one of them was smart and all of them were honorable. And they, they just flourished in that school, man. And we had Kelly up there one summer with us just on vacation. And she winds up being a, a trip where she got a whole room full of red ribbons and blue, jumping over creeks, jumping over stone walls and all. And they could do that as well as uh, you, you got 100. A kid got 100. I guess it was an essay question. And it was like 20 or 30 points. And they asked the cause of World War One. The kid put down economics. <laughs> they, came, they, they marked them correct, man. You can't, you can't argue with the truth. So uh, I really like the inner self. I always did believe in me, and I always took my punishments. Uh, I could take my medicine, and I could take what was coming to me, and that used to bug them worse than anything. Well, Patrick, it's always a pleasure trying to interrupt you and get on with our show. But it's a pleasure talking with you. And I knew I had a funny feeling you might have resonated with what we were talking about. And you put a nice exclamation point on it. And we look forward to talking with you next week. All right, man. Stay healthy, my friend. Adios. <laughs> we'll tell, start our second hour. And the second hour, uh, we're going to get music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, a poem from Victoria Sullivan. Our special guest, our annual guest at this time is Mayura Blaustein. Now, in the age of COVID, how do you put on a film festival? She and her staff figured out how to do it. We're going to find out how they're going to do it and some of the really interesting films that are going to be shown. We'll also have time to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. Fasten your seatbelts for that one. We'll be right back. I'm sorry. This is the revolutionary etude that the teacher in the general music class 
did before he opened his mouth in front of 60 jocks, most of whom didn't want to be in the room and got a standing ovation. Try playing this. <laughs> 